Well, welcome to Hemp Barons, John Johnson. Thank you so much for being with us today. Glad to be with you, Joy. Now you are, and we just recently had Patrick Atagi on the chairman of the board of the National Industrial Hemp Council. You are a board member, one of the very many impressive board members uh, that make up the leadership of the National Industrial Hemp Council. Isn't that right? That's correct. Patrick asked me to join them last year. Excellent. And what was your, just curious here, what was your, it's wonderful to see how organically the community of hemp builds itself um, as the, as the crop reemerges. Did you have a prior relationship with Patrick? I know, of course, he's been very active in the USDA. Yes, Patrick and I both served in the George W. Bush administration at USDA. Um, I've had a lifetime in production agriculture. I farmed in partnership with my father for 10 years back in the 80s. Um, have worked for agriculture in a variety of roles ever since then. Uh, worked for Virginia Farm Bureau, worked for the Virginia Poultry Federation. I've worked at USDA. And most recently, I spent 10 and a half years as uh, working at the National Pork uh, Board, which is the checkoff organization for the pork industry. And the uh, last seven years, I served as their chief operating officer. Um, this spring, uh, I transitioned into a new role where I'm uh, working as a consultant from my home and I'm, I'm working on some projects for the National Pork Board, as well as for some other agricultural clients. Man, are, are you exactly who hemp needs in terms of a checkoff program? So as that impressive board um, all has these tremendous skill sets and specializations that it is bringing to the table uh, as the crop emerges, you are particularly skilled with checkoff. And, and that's what I'd love for our listeners to really get into the nitty gritty of what that is, what it serves, and, and answering some basic questions. And before we do that, I just, I just have to say and, and want the listeners to know really the breadth of your experience um, it, within the USDA Farm Service Agency, the FSA. Uh, you served, of course, as Deputy Administrator for Farm Programs in D.C. Uh, you were responsible for administrating the nation's farm subsidy programs, right. disaster assistance programs, which are such part of us our uh, scheme in the current day, and the Conservation Reserve Program, and the Tobacco Buyout Program. You, <laughs> you bring, again, this wealth of experience. Yeah, had uh, quite a varied uh, experience experience there. It's a, a very challenging job, one I enjoyed thoroughly um, and uh, is uh, a very demanding job. I told folks I, I worked harder at USDA than any job that I'd had since I was farming. And a lot of folks don't uh, appreciate that there are some bureaucrats that work hard. <laughs> Yes, indeed. When you are purpose driven um, yeah. and, and a professional of integrity, which clearly you are. So let's get into what a and, and just sort of pretending that you're talking to and you are the public here who maybe is hearing about a checkoff program for the first time or maybe is aware of of the need for a checkoff program. They're dipping their toes in it. But what is essentially a checkoff program for agriculture? What does it sure. do? And then we'll get into the nitty gritties of it. Well, it's an excellent question. Uh, most folks in the general public don't really have a good understanding. A checkoff is when the producers or farmers or growers of a certain commodity come together and they say, we want to assess ourselves and pool our resources to advance our commodity. We wanna do research and how to use our product. Uh, we wanna do education and, and promotion with the public on how the, why they should buy the product. And we wanna do market development activities for the product to expand markets for the product. 
So there are 21 nationally approved checkoffs in the United States. Originally, they started back in the 1960s with the, I think the cotton board was the first checkoff. And they every commodity had to go to Congress and get a specific piece of legislation authorizing them to put this assessment in place. In 1996, Congress said, we're tired of doing these individual pieces of legislation. And they passed a generic law that gave the USDA Agricultural Marketing Service the authority to approve new checkoffs under their regulations. And so since 1996, any agricultural commodity can put together a package, uh, a proposal for USDA Agricultural Marketing Service to put in place a new checkoff. So there's 21 checkoffs today including the ones that were formed back before 1996 and the ones that have been passed since then. I worked for the National Pork Board for 10 and a half years. The pork checkoff was instituted as part of the 1985 Farm Bill. So was the beef checkoff. There's one for the beef industry as well. There's a checkoff for the cotton industry. There's a checkoff for the sorghum industry. The dairy industry, you might have remember the milk mustache campaign years ago. That was part of the dairy checkoff. Beef has the tagline, it's beef, it's what's for dinner. You may have heard some of those advertisements. Pork, we had the tagline in the late 80s and through the 90s as pork, the other white meat. So these are advertising and promotional campaigns that really have been very successful in promoting different commodities. But there's also some lesser known ones. There's a, there's a checkoff for the honey industry. There's a checkoff for the Christmas tree industry. There's a checkoff for the blueberry industry. These are smaller ones and don't raise quite as much money and are not as well known. So that altogether, there's 21 of these. They're overseen by USDA. Their board members are appointed by the Secretary of Agriculture. They are audited annually and have to submit an audit to USDA. And then every three years, USDA does what they call a management review. So there's a, a real focus on transparency and accountability. And they all operate with the idea that this money came from farmers and we need to spend it carefully and invest it on behalf of those farmers to advance the, the industry of that particular commodity, whether it's dairy, whether it's pork or whether it's blueberries or honey, or if the hemp industry decides to go forward, the hemp industry. How do we collect dollars and invest them into three areas? Research, what kind of research needs does this industry have? Is it research into new utilization, new uses? Is it research into how to better grow the commodity? Uh, what types of research are needed? And then there's education of the public. You know, is the public fully aware of all the benefits and uses of this commodity and how it can be used and, and why they should be buying it? And then there's market development activities like are there retailers or other folks who can commercialize your product that you want to work with in order to develop new markets? And some of those markets can be both domestically in the United States and there's also work that can be done internationally using checkoff dollars to get matching dollars from USDA Foreign Agricultural Service to double the money that can be spent to develop international markets for your commodity. So there's lots of opportunities. Um, what we're in the early stages of, and I wanna stress that very early stages of, is trying to test the waters with the industry to put together a, a work group that's diverse and represents the industry both geographically as well as in size of, 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 of you know, businesses, little, medium, small, uh, large, as well as uh, different types of uses. Is it, is it hemp for fiber? Is it hemp for grain? Is it hemp for CBD? Making sure we have all segments of the industry represented and pulling this work group together to say, look, 
here's the concept of a checkoff, here's how it's been used for other commodities. Is this something that the hemp industry would like to explore and pursue? And if ultimately there's a consensus about that, and I'm sure that will take some time to explore those issues, then ultimately a more detailed proposal would be uh, put together and submitted to USDA for their uh, examination and review. And let me just let me just stop you there for a moment. Thank you. This is excellent. Uh, the uh, most comprehensive and in layman's term explanation that I've ever heard so far. And you are definitely the man um, or person, I should say, to do that. A question for you uh, that I know is on a lot of folks' mind, and it's a misperception, and, and it's frustrating for me to see this misperception out there. Obviously, the checkoff program needs to be funded, and and you were probably going to eventually get there. I just it, it's just uh, good for us to give the listeners a, a little a little break in the conversation as as we as we drill into these issues. Somebody has to fund it, and it's, of course, the the industry itself uh, that funds it. Um, and folks are saying, you know, this looks like just another tax. This is a tax. It's so frustrating, of course, to to see the short-sightedness um, and the lack of, of awareness of how important it is, just like all of those other well-established, successful industries that you talked about that comprise those 21 uh, checkoff programs and other coalitions that haven't done a checkoff program, but they coalesce, they coalesce, and that is we're working together for the good and the interests of our entire industry. It's a cooperative effort from which we all benefit. No, it is not another tax. It is an investment that has proven itself for decades and decades over and over to be in the best interest of the industry. And frankly, especially, of course, if you come from a place of, of that I do, which is that hemp is here to serve all of humanity's needs and make the planet better. Um, it's to make, make us all healthier. It's for the public. So can we talk for a minute about the funding of yeah. it? Well, you're exactly right, Joy. You, you used the word uh, cooperative, and that's really the foundation of the concept of a checkoff. Um, back in, oh, it was after World War II, uh, under Kaper-Volstead uh, provisions that Congress passed, of agricultural cooperatives began to form and, and it's where farmers came together and said let's pool our resources and if we all get together we can buy our inputs our fertilizer our chemicals or our seed or whatever it is we need we can buy these things cheaper if we buy them in volume together and we can set up a business to you know put this uh, industry uh, or a business together that would provide our business needs and those cooperatives have been set up and there's some small ones, there's some very large ones. And, you know, Land of Lakes is a cooperative. Uh, Century Harvest State CHS is the, probably the world's largest cooperative, but there's many smaller ones too. Some only operate within one state. Some exist to focus on procuring certain products for, for farmers. Others uh, are much broader in what they do. But that idea that farmers could say let's pool our resources and come together and we can do things more some things more efficiently if we join hands and pool resources and it was out of that cooperative spirit that checkoffs came about and checkoffs they're a little different than cooperatives but the the, the underlying philosophy is the same is that let's pool our resources and see if we can't more effectively together link arms to do research education and promotion and market development together. 
if we try, all try to do this individually on our own in a splintered fashion, uh, maybe one or two or three of us will succeed, but the, the, most of us aren't going to have enough resources to do that effectively. So how do we pool our dollars to say, let's launch an effort that benefits the whole industry it doesn't benefit just one producer, but it benefits everybody and the rising tide lifts all boats. And so you're right, it has to be funded. And the way that checkoffs are funded is the people who put the proposal together submit to USDA, they say, we want an assessment on our industry. Uh, and that assessment is done two different ways. One, it could be a percent of value. In other words, so the pork industry that I work for, every time a pig was sold, four-tenths of one percent of the sales price or 40 cents out of every hundred dollars was assessed and came to the national pork board to do research education and promotion and so when you could you that, just repeat only because i didn't get it how many cents was that 40, 0. 0.04 40 or 0. Cents, 40 cents out of every 100 dollars so out of every one hundred dollars, yeah. thank you. So forty you sell, cents if, out of every one hundred dollars. If you sell a pig for a hundred dollars, forty cents comes to the pork board. If you sell a pig for two hundred dollars, eighty cents comes to the pork board. So it's it's four tenths of one percent. And so when you add up the hundred and thirty million pigs that are sold every year in this country, that ends up being somewhere between seventy and ninety million dollars a year that get raised from all sixty thousand hog farmers in the country. And the pork board uses that, that money overseen by USDA for research, education, and promotion. Now, that's percent of value. That's one approach to establishing an assessment. There's another approach, and that's on assessing, uh, making the assessments based upon units of production. And so the cattle industry chose that route. The Cattlemen's Beef Board says every time a cow is sold, a cow, a steer, or a calf, it's $1 a head. And so every time a, a a bovine is sold, like I said, a bull, a cow, a steer, or, or calf, or a heifer, $1 goes to the Cattlemen's Beef Board. And don't quote me on this. I don't think, I, I think that raises for Cattlemen's Beef Board somewhere between 40 and $60 million a year. So there's different, there's two different approaches, and it's an, it's an assessment based upon percent of value of the crop harvested, or it's an assessment based upon a unit of production, how many bushels, how many tons, how many whatever widgets you're producing. And so if the hemp industry were to pursue this, they would have to make a decision, what's the, what's the best way to raise money for our industry? And the other question you have to ask is, what are the needs that our industry has? And what kind of budget is necessary to effectively address those needs? You know, I'm a novice. I don't know the hemp industry well. You do. You've spent your life in it. But you would have a much better sense of how great are the research needs for the hemp industry. And if we were going to work with three of the major land-grant colleges, let's say Colorado, Kentucky, and pick another one, I don't know. To, Cornell. Oh, Cornell. Okay, there you go. To focus this is just on, so ahead. To focus on the 10 most important issues that we need research on, how much money would we need to fund that research? And then if there's education that needs to happen, because as I think I've picked up from you, not everybody understands hemp very well or what the hemp products can be used for or how they're used or how they're different from marijuana and all this. You know, what type of public education program needs to be in place and what's that cost if you if that's really a priority for you? What's an effective budget to allow you to effectively execute against that mission. And then if there's market development activities, and again, you know more about this than I do, what, what are the needs in that space and what kind of budget is necessary to develop new markets for hemp products and byproducts? 
so the industry has to wrestle with, you know, what are the top priorities and what kind of resources are needed to effectively address them? And then from and that- let's, and, and may, may I just ask, and, and thank you so much for, for letting me interrupt you for a moment there. Um, of course, as you well, well know, because you're getting your, we're, we're getting your great skills as you get your feet wet in, in this incredible crop. Uh, you know, the oilseed and fiber industries, which are were my focus and, and have been my focus for the last 30 years, are really the trillion-dollar industries. We're talking about serving plant and animal nutrition, body care, paper, textiles, biocomposites, building materials, industrial sealants and coatings, energy and fuel, nanotechnology, biomedical applications. I mean, somebody stop me. It's every (laughs) single aspect of life on earth for humans and animals. Um, So in that respect, of course, it is an endless need. We could, it's with hemp, we're going to have to sort of take it off in chunks because it's every industry, you know, um, it isn't just, and then of course there's the extract world, which for me was new. It hit me like a ton of bricks six years ago. I didn't get into hemp 30 years ago because of hemp derived cannabinoids. And yet, and as much as hemp derived cannabinoids take up all of the air in the room. And even when you swear in this conference and this, we're not, we're not going to talk about CBD. And then the next thing you know, you're spending 10 minutes of a 30 minute session talking about or answering questions about CBD and thank God for it in many ways, because it's through this relief that people are getting for various occasional uh, symptoms and general wellness and all of the breakthrough research that folks are paying attention to hemp or being introduced to hemp through it. It, it never ceases to amaze me, John. I, I'm, I speak all over, although now virtually with COVID, of course, but I, I probably did about 55 or so trips last year uh, speaking and you know, I speak to at a lot of CBD or cannabinoid uh, conferences, and I sometimes stumble upon myself that I, I forget. And then I have to make, there are most of the people in this room, and sometimes I ask by a show of hands, literally have no idea that hemp actually can be used for anything other than this miracle thing that yeah. they have discovered called yeah. CBD. Um, so, so in any event, I digress. It's a matter of as you say, budgeting and prioritizing. And certainly those researchers at the very land-grant colleges, and and there were so many wonderful universities and colleges Mm -hmm. coming in, but those particular land-grant universities you've discussed have had their finger in this pie, and boy, do they know those those areas. May I ask you, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. As you point out, it sounds like there's an enormous amount of need and so obviously somebody's going to have to set priorities because you can't do everything at once. And you probably exactly. you probably can't raise enough money to solve all the industry's problems in three years, right? I so promise you, you that. You eat an elephant one bite at a time. And so the, if, if the hemp industry were to pursue a checkoff, there would be a board appointed by the secretary. And that board would be responsible for uh, developing a budget and saying, OK, what are our spending priorities? What are we going to tackle first? And so that that would be the job of that board of directors. Great to know, and boy, do boy would I want to make sure great people are on that board, and wouldn't I love to be on it? Um, are you aware? And it's just interesting how, and I know that checkoff programs are very state driven. At the same time. 
we want a cooperative, unified yeah. uh, voice, which uh, which I think is just so wonderful that that NIHC has come in. Were you aware that on April 22nd of just this year, it, a press release was was uh, was released by the Montana Department of Agriculture that they created within the state of Montana a one percent hemp checkoff program within their state? Yes, I had heard about that, and I understand there's a couple other states that are discussing it as well. And so it's important to understand that if there was a national hemp checkoff established, it would not in any way impair or hamper these state efforts at a local level. In fact, it would be wise and prudent to establish a healthy, coordinated relationship between a national checkoff and the state checkoff so that you can complement each other's work and not get in each other's way. Um, a, a state checkoff, just by virtue of the fact that it's a fragment of the country, won't be able to raise the level of resources that a national checkoff can. But that's not to say that they aren't needed or, or can't have a productive role. But there would be a need to make sure that there's a healthy relationship and a coordination between a national organization and the states. So, in other words, not only can they coexist, they can coexist and create synergy as yeah. long as everyone's working together. Absolutely. So when I was at the National Pork Board, there are about 42 state pork associations. And uh, when the pork checkoff was established in the mid 80s, there were a number of state checkoffs. They basically decided to stop collecting their state checkoffs and, and, and would arrange to get a certain percentage of the national checkoff returned back to them, which is the way the pork industry worked that out. Every industry addresses it differently. But those state associations still exist and, and have a, a function that's unique to the needs of their state. But there's a good cooperative relationship between the National Pork Board and those state associations. That they can work to both entities' advantages. The, the national needs those grassroots local folks on a state-by-state -state basis, and those state associations also benefit from being able to have a healthy relationship and perhaps share resources uh, with the national organization. So they don't preclude each other, they don't need to get in each other's way, but it does take some intentional planning to make sure that the relationship stays strong, healthy, and coordinated. Excellent. Out, outstanding. Um, please continue. I've interrupted you now a few times here and there is no doubt. And I've got some other questions for you, well, but I want to make sure that you're educating me and the audience um, as uh, to the extent that you feel we should be educated on checkoff specifically. Well, one point I'd like to make, Joy, is there's that there is always a certain percentage of folks in an agricultural industry that are a little bit of naysayers and are, are not excited about checkoffs. Um, and welcome to hemp where we've got more than our fair share of naysayers. Yeah, well, we're a wily bunch. Pat, Patrick told me that hemp is the wild, wild west. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but at, at any rate, um, it's important to acknowledge those concerns and have candid conversations with folks. But there's some good evidence to share with them about the value of checkoffs. Um, Texas A&M University, uh, several years ago, uh, I think it was either 2016 or 2017, I think it was 2017, did a study of all of the checkoffs that were in place at that time. All the checkoffs are required every five years by USDA to do what's called a return on investment study. And they, they contract with uh, ag agricultural economists to analyze 
their industry, their markets, and the impact of the checkoff. And they use econometric modeling to do that. And I'm not an economist. I don't have training in economics, but I can, I've can. i seen enough of these done for the pork industry as well as others. Texas A&M looked at all of the return on investment studies that have been done. And many of them have been done by Cornell. Um, uh, Harry, Dr. Harry Kaiser at Cornell has done a number of them, uh, but Texas A&M has done a number of them as well. Anyway, the folks at Texas A&M looked at all the ones that have been done and determined that of all the checkoffs in place, they all had a positive return on investment that ranged from a low of $3 for every $1 invested to a high, which was the National Pork Board, I'll be happy, of 17 to one. Three to one to 17 to one. And, wow. uh, and typically the area of, of work that a checkoff funds that has the greatest impact is research. The, the scientific research that Pork Board has conducted with land grants has a, a really astronomical rate of return according to these uh, economists at the land grant universities. So I just want, those studies are available for anybody who wants to look at them and scrutinize them. I can provide them to you or share them with anyone who's interested, but it's a good solid evidence that there's a positive return back to the farm or back to the ranch in the case of cattle uh, of the investment of those checkoff dollars. Fantastic to know, and thank you for offering that. Uh, three to one, 17 to one. I mean, this is, guys, basically you would almost have to try to lose <laughs> if you would have to be led by unexperienced people um, in, in order to lose out here. This is a cooperative uh, endeavor that is necessary for, I would, you know, venture to say any agricultural commodity. Um, and I'm going to say doubly, triply, actually for less of a more articulate or appropriate word, exponentially more so for hemp, given the number of industries that it serves, given the unique makeup of hemp, whether we're talking it's totally unique cellulosic makeup, it may look like canaf and flax while it's growing, put that baby under a microscope and forget about it. It's its own thing. It is unbelievably unique. The cannabinoid profiles, the extracts, and then when we get into, of course, those industries, the the grading, and how are we going to deal with um, all of the all of the research for everything that it serves? So, uh, Joy, so it just, Joy, you just mentioned canaf. I haven't heard canaf yes. mentioned in many years. My dad and I actually grew an experimental crop of canaf on contract in 1972. <laughs> wow. Ancient, wow. We, ancient history. It was for a high quality paper mill. And uh, they contracted with us to, to grow. I don't know. It wasn't a lot. It was 20 acres or so. But um, they we just did it for them one year. But I hadn't heard anybody mention Knaff in a long time until you just did. You know, it's interesting because a lot of the variety trials that we see, and certainly when the farm bill the, under the agricultural pilot programs, the legitimacy of industrial hemp research, which was the amendment or provision within the 2014 farm bill, and we began to see uh, universities and others participate in these variety trials. And we would often see hemp, canaf, flax, new variety of hemp, new variety of hemp, you know, and, and corn. Um, but they're, they're very much 
together, it's interesting. And even that three and five uh, series for the BMW door liners, because um, they've been using in Germany, in the EU, not here in the United States yet, although Toyota is getting into it, keeping in mind that the EU is under much more pressure than we are to reduce carbon emissions. And so they've been advancing uh, this research there because anytime you are going to decrease the overall weight of the car, you're going to have a quantifiable effect on the reduction of carbon emissions. And so they began to replace at least BMW and many others now. This is kind of old news, but um, the just the door liners back then with a hemp and canaf blend mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just hemp. So we see them blended a lot together. It's, uh, it's interesting. So let me ask you, John, um, there's all these different uh, conspiracy theories that hempsters and, and others uh, have in their minds. And let's just get in front of, of one of them. Where does the money go other than which is not spent directly on research? Is there any opportunity for some private or for-profit endeavor or person to make money off of a checkoff program? Can we address that? Not really, Joy. Uh, so every checkoff organization has to submit a budget annually to USDA Agricultural Marketing Service for approval before they can start spending money under that budget. And then after that budget is in place, approved by USDA, uh, USDA then also approves case by case individual projects that the checkoff wants to fund. And so let's say there's a, a new research item that came up with Cornell University. There would have to be a project description, what that research involved, how much money was involved, how the money would be paid out. That had to be submitted to USDA AMS before you, the checkoff could actually pay Cornell University that money. So there's a a strong level of oversight from USDA over the spending of the checkoff dollars. And then they require uh, what's called a GAGAS audit. That's a a generally accepted government accounting standard audit. It's not just a a level higher than the conventional business audit. It's a government standard audit that has to be done annually. And then every three years, USDA sends a staff person into the checkoff office or persons and sits down and goes through the books and they um, will just run randomized uh, selections to say, we're gonna pull this file and we want to see all the expenditures that were associated with this activity and all the, the steps and checks that were issued and the product that was developed and what you got back. And so they'll just kind of randomize, randomly select different activities to review and what they call a, a management review, that review that's done every three years. So you've got extensive oversight from USDA. You've got an independent uh, uh CPA audit has to be done annually. You got a three-year review by USDA. And then uh, the board of directors, while they are typically nominated by their industry to the secretary of agriculture, uh, you usually have to send in one and a half or two or even three names for every vacancy you have. Then the secretary picks from among those names and appoints them. But those people are accountable back to their industry. And if there's any concern that the board is not exercising their fiduciary responsibilities well on behalf of the industry, they can file complaints with the Secretary of Agriculture about either individual board members or the whole board for that matter, if they weren't doing their job. And there's always an opportunity for, uh, if there's a certain percentage of the industry to ask for what's called a referendum, 
to say, look, we don't think this Chekhov's operating properly. We want to have a vote on whether this should continue or not. There's there's a mechanism in place where I forget the percentage. It's, it's a certain percentage of the industry has to request that referendum, and the secretary will then order that to be done. So there's checks and balances along the way. Um, uh, there's a transparency. Uh, all checkoffs have to publish their budgets on the, their website. Uh, they have to name their board members and contact information for their board members. Uh, so it's, it's well, while not every person in the industry might ag- agree with the priorities that the board establishes, it says we're going to research X. There might be somebody out there who says, no, we shouldn't research X, we should be researching Y. Well, that's just a legitimate difference of opinion that that's not unethical or an abuse of funds. It's just a difference of opinion and priorities. So there will always be somebody who has a disagreement perhaps with uh, either what's named as a priority or a certain project being funded. But the fact that it was funded and how many dollars were went and what was the value received back for those dollars is public information and available to be scrutinized by anybody. This is just outstanding. I mean, we're talking about not only are there a multiple layers of checks and balances, there are also mechanisms in place for this to be a democratic right. process. Uh, so really, there is... I'm just going to tell you, hemp community, there is no excuse and no reason not to support, actively support the creation of checkoff programs for the world's most valuable, versatile crop ever in the history of the world. So, period. I I understand that crop and the whole industry is just rapidly expanding and USD, I forget the numbers, Patrick can quote them, but you know, over the next five or 10 years, USDA is really predicting an exponential expansion of the industry and, and the dollar value of the industry. For And for every, every uh, industry that I named when we were talking earlier, exponentially, I mean, once hemp gets going and we've got that infrastructure, as the listeners often hear me say, for these last five years, we've been asking farmers to grow a crop for which there's very little infrastructure. We've been asking investors to invest in infrastructure for which there is very little crop other than extract, uh, but yet one foot in front of the other in tandem. And what we call the, I can't stand to use the word, but it applies here, the magic of hemp. We're watching the infrastructure grow. We're watching varieties for hemp, uh, uh, for fiber and oil seeds starting to be planted with lots more, tons more acreage as more traditional farmers, thanks to the 2018 Farm Bill, thanks to the availability now of federal crop insurance, mm. are really getting into the game. Experienced grain farmers with equipment, with irrigated land, so on and so forth, getting into it um, and and we're we're watching it uh, we're watching it unfold. What a tremendous and important role uh, the NIHC is playing in this, um, and and we're just so lucky to have you in hemp. Well, it's a wonderful opportunity. I'm pleased to have the opportunity to play a very small role here, and it sounds like it's going to be a very exciting future. And I'm looking forward to seeing how I can assist in that effort. Well, we're so grateful to have you, and it is going to continue to unfold. It is just the never-ending exploration of this plant. And before we go, because I want to make sure I didn't cut you off, John, is there something that that you may have left out that you do want to make sure you say, or did you get it all out for us? Well, uh, 
I, I, th I think we've pretty well covered it. I mean, it, like I said, there's 21 other checkoffs to other commodities have made that decision that this collaborative effort where we join, link arms, join hands and pool our resources to do research, education, product promotion, market development work uh, has, has served those industries well. There's a track record through the return on investment studies that I mentioned that Texas A&M has, has scrutinized that should, demonstrates there's an effective return back to the farm. Their dollars yes. well spent. Um, I, I think this is a good opportunity for a, a developing industry like hemp uh, to put in place a mechanism that can help them expand, grow, uh, explore new opportunities in an orderly and well-funded fashion. Well, a big, giant, warm welcome to hemp, uh, John Johnson. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for lending your skills and talents and tremendous experience to this incredible crop. And I can't wait to work with you in the future. Thank you for being with us. It's pleasure to be with you, Joy. Look forward to talking again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% .9 of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.